It's Agarts from Horse and Buggy Land. Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an Agarts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me, and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down, and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. Bob McConnell is unlike any conductor I've ever seen. People have approached Bob after performances to tell him that this concert was the most fun they'd ever had at a classical musical event. It was just as good, if not better, than the ones they'd seen in big cities. And a lot of that has to do with Bob, the master of ceremonies and, quite frankly, a stand-up comic when he is on stage. They're just, it's just such a beautiful sound, so I've got to dry my tears off some before I go on, because I'm kind of too sensitive for that kind of music. Uh, but I'll make up for that later. Uh, I just do a search on nice orchestral Christmas music, and most of it you have to just skip over, because it's trash. It's, it's elevator trash music. As the director and conductor of the Southeast Iowa Symphony, Bob McConnell has created an amazing musical scene in this region. One of the first places I saw him conduct was at St. Peter and Paul Church, just south of Harper, Iowa, on a cold December day just before Christmas. The Victorian Gothic Church, now on the National Historic List, was constructed by German settlers in 1898 with beautiful hand-carved naves and 14 stained-glass windows. And when I went to this performance a few years ago, I had no idea what to expect when I entered the church. The performance was unbelievable and has become a holiday tradition for me. Bob takes breaks in between songs and has musicians play specific parts of tunes to help the audience better understand what they're hearing and to help young audience members develop an interest in a particular instrument. Look at 103 in the piece we just played, just in the brass. I, I just think one of the cool things we do is we go out and do these cool, when, when I say the cool things we do, I'm speaking with all due humility, but one of the cool <laughs> things we do is we break pieces down for students when we're in schools and show them different things. And 103, that brass part is so cool. Let's. Let's just do all the brass together with the three pickups and the trumpets. So here's the downbeat of 102. Yeah. On this episode of Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, a conversation with the conductor and musical director 
of the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra, Bob McConnell. Oh, and did I mention that Bob is also a pig farmer in Washington, Iowa? Most people don't want to hire a pig farmer to direct their orchestra. They, it looks bad, you know. It, it just makes you seem like you're a podunk deal that you couldn't get anybody better. Also on today's episode, we feature some of the music performed at the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra's recent holiday concert at the St. Peter and Paul Church near Harper, Iowa, from earlier this month. Right now, you'll listen to Infant Holy.
Now let's get to my conversation with Bob McConnell. I started off by asking Bob how he had developed as an artist and how his early life led him to a career in music. I grew up in a family of 10. I was the ninth of 10 kids on a farm and most of them were girls. I have eight, eight sisters and a brother. Music was highly valued in our family and in my mom's family. Uh, my mom's mother died in the swine flu epidemic in 1918 oh. or 19. Wow. But we have, uh, so there were three parents. The father eventually remarried, and I have a couple of aunts and uncles from that group too. But among those descendants on my mom's side of the family is where most of the music came from. We figured out one time there were a hundred and out of, like at a typical reunion every three years, we'll have 120 to 140 people at Mar Park, just near Ainsworth, Iowa, between Washington and Ainsworth. And we had 45 people at that time that were either practicing musicians or had music degrees or were teaching or performing. But for myself, I, I didn't really think about that ever. And I was in the eighth grade and my band director was Gary McCurdy, who you might know as the tuba doer. A lot of people have seen him around, and Gary's a great cook, too. So I, I've told Gary this story. He, he has no memory of it. We were in uh, the closet in, on the stage in the gymnasium, which was where a lot of music lessons were taught. And they're still taught in Iowa, in closets. So... <laughs> I, we finished a lesson and I was playing oboe and I know in retrospect that I was awful. And at the end of the lesson, Gary turned to me and he said, I think you should consider a career in music. I think you, you really have potential. And I remember being even then dumbfounded, like what? And all I was thinking of was probably farming. And I don't know what I didn't, I didn't ever think about my future like a lot of kids. And, uh, but in high school, we had a band director, Larry Green, who's kind of famous in Iowa. And uh, Larry is a very good band director. And we had a great jazz band. And so I started playing in jazz band. I started playing saxophone. And that was very natural to me. I did well in it, uh, went to the contests and everything. But I wasn't going to go to college. I, I, I had a very I had very good scores, but I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't care. I was going to just hang out and party. And, you know, I, I played in a rock band. I sang in a rock band um, mainly because I could sing and they couldn't. And, and I didn't have anything to play except sax for that. So we did a lot of Creedence Clearwater and Beatles, Rolling Stones and uh, James Taylor's Steamroller Blues. Uh, but my band director found out I was I was thinking of not going to college. And then my dad found that out. And my dad just said to me, he, my dad never gave me fatherly advice. He was worn out by the time they got to the ninth kid. And he said to me, you know, I couldn't go to college because of the depression. And you're going to go to college. I goes, I don't care what you do, but uh, you're going to go to college. 
I told, I think, I don't know if he talked to my band director, but my band director just gave me this talk about, you know, you have to aspire to things in life and you're, you're a good musician. You can be good. And he got me to interview down at Kirksville, which was Northeast Missouri and it's Truman state now. And they offered me some scholarships. And then as you probably know, I mean, college was unbelievably cheap. Then. Right. I mean, it was, it was in a different universe. I went for jazz band and I made the second jazz band, which was, you know, the top one was superb. And I didn't even aspire to that at that point, but they needed a second oboe. So they pretty much force you into the stuff. They chorus you, I guess it'd be a better way of saying it by a variety of things. And I found out later, all the faculty were in on it, um, getting me to play second oboe in the orchestra and then having me develop. Well, it happened that there was another oboist there playing first oboist, oboe. Her dad was a band director and she was very good. So that's the first time in my life I heard what the oboe could, could sound like. I, I shouldn't say it's the first. The reason I chose oboe was Leonard Bernstein's uh, Young Person's Guide right. to the Orchestra or whatever they called that, those. I heard the, the instrument demonstrations and I heard the oboe and I was like, wow, that is beautiful. I guess I'll do that. So when you're choosing the instruments, I was in line in fourth grade in the gymnasium and we got up to the table. My mom is with me. And the band director said, what do you want to play? Well, again, my mom was worn out from nine kids, 10 kids. And she goes, oh, I forgot to even ask them, you know. And so they all turned and looked at me. And I said, I want to play an oboe. And the band directors got up out of their chairs. They said, you want to play oboe? And they were like thrilled. Nobody wants to play oboe. They usually just get shoved into it because they have too many flutes or clarinets. So that's how I chose the instrument was I'd heard it. So then I get to college and here's someone sitting next to me that sounds like a million bucks. And plus she was very nice. And um, so I sat in that first rehearsal. This is my first experience playing in an ensemble with strings and quite a few very good players. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is really cool. So I, I was I was there at that point. And then in those days, the St. Louis Symphony toured all the Missouri colleges. So they came up and played. And again, it was it was unbelievable. I mean, they were very, very good. Now, I was still a hick, so I couldn't really appreciate what I was hearing, except I knew, wow, this is damn good. And um, so all of their musicians would invite players in various studios, the trumpet studio, the clarinet studio, flutes, to meet with them. That was part of their deal. So he asked if I wanted to meet with him. And, and I said, yeah. And he goes, OK, come out to the hotel where the orchestra is staying tomorrow and bring your oboe and read. And I, since that time, I, this is Richard Woodhams. Now, nobody listening to your program is probably going to know who he is. He's one of the world's greatest oboists now. I, that's generally acknowledged. He just retired from the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he gave me one of his reads to play on and asked me to do some things. And 
I was able to do the things he asked me to do. And then he said, I think you can really be a good oboe player. Do you want to come down to St. Louis, take lessons every so often? And I was, I was like, I, I don't know. I think so. And so I told my oboe professor at the college what he had said. And he came out of his chair. He goes, if Richard Woodhams is offering to give you lessons, the answer is yes. And you just have to go as often as you can. So during the summers for the next three years, and some during the school year, but especially that first summer, I would get up and leave my farm at four in the morning in Washington, Iowa, just east of Washington. Uh, and I would drive at that time, it took four and a half hours, and I would get there at 830 and he'd say, just ring the doorbell, that'll wake me up. And so I would wake him up, he'd come down in his robe, and he'd get me up to his studio, which was in the attic, and then he would go make coffee. He'd tell me to play long tones, and he'd yell at me from the basement on what to do. So that was that was really my start. And then he guided me to getting my master's. And I never studied conducting. I only started conducting because I found most conductors were so bad I couldn't stand it. And um, then I kind of fell into it. And I really got my conducting training because I was principal oboe in the Quad City Symphony for 26 years. And I played under Jim Dixon, who was extremely demanding. And he, thank you, Jesus, he loved my playing. Uh, so I, I would think about why is he rehearsing this way? How, why is he doing this? And I suspect most orchestral players don't do that. I was just interested in it. I got some band conducting work right away. And I learned things by paying attention there. And then I conducted in the Washington Community Theater. I did like 12 pit orchestra musicals in 10 years. That, or, that theater really used to be very, very active. And um, then I had to kind of quit doing that um, because I got so busy with orchestral playing and, and different conducting. And then, but then did you go to um, the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra? Yes. I, I, in 1989, let's see, 88, I applied. The conductor, Ruth Karaus, was one of the few female orchestra conductors around. And she knew me very well. We played in a woodwind quintet together, and I directed the band down at Iowa Wesleyan. And I applied for the orchestra job. Well, they didn't take me. Uh, they hired, they had three candidates, auditioned them. Then they hired a graduate of the University of Iowa and he got a better job before the summer. So then they were in a real crunch and they invited me to be one of the three candidates. And over the objections, as far as I can tell of about half the board, I got the job uh, because most people that serve, well, I don't know, I wasn't in there, but here's what I surmise is most people don't want to hire a pig farmer to direct their orchestra. They, it looks bad, you know, it, it just makes you seem like you're a podunk deal that you couldn't get anybody better. And I, I understand that view. I mean, 
I feel that way in a lot of ways. Well, you're perfect. You're the perfect artist for ag arts, uh, your combination of farmer and conductor. So you could feel really proud of yourself on that score on this podcast. But when, when I've watched you conducting, and it's like nothing I've ever seen in my life, no conductor I've ever seen in my life. It's like a dramatic uh, presentation. So what's your philosophy of conducting? I mean, you said you've watched people and kind of learned on the wing, but you must have a sense of like what you want to do when you get up there in front of the orchestra. So I learned to conduct by doing band work, actually taking any conducting opportunity that somebody asked. And again, it wasn't a deal where I really wanted to conduct but I wanted to be good because the things that aggravated me about conductors were the clarity of the conductor. Every musician should be able to look at the conductor at any moment and know what beat they are on in the darn measure. And that's not the goal of a lot of conductors. They are doing something else. Um, And some of them are extremely effective doing something else. But I would say the bulk of them are not. Um, It's very disappointing because the listeners can't tell how good or bad the conductor is. They they just can't. It's if you're playing for the conductor, you have a pretty good chance of telling if they're good or bad. But even then, a lot of musicians, they're just not paying close enough attention to know how is how are they influencing the rehearsal? So. And I, and I do want to jump back before I forget something. You said, said I had created this. I don't look at it that way. I look at, I enabled it. Mm-hmm. The, the people were here and they were talented. So together we've all gotten better every year. That is actually, I have to say, that's the most amazing thing to me about it. Some players have been playing with me since my first year they are all at the top of their game now. And they, they say that too. They're better than they were when they started and I'm better. And so clarity of, of communication, helping them play their absolute best is what I'm after. Um, now, you know, you have to have some kind of an ego to do this stuff. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't have the confidence to get up there. Now, I tell all my players, go ahead and criticize me or raise issues when they come up. Usually don't do it during rehearsal, but if you have to do it, because I want to, I I hate, hate, hate wasting time in rehearsals. So I think most of my musicians, especially the professional level ones, will tell you, that my rehearsals are more efficient than any rehearsals they've sat through. And that's a combination of playing from, for Dixon, knowing what didn't work and what worked. Occasionally I would ask him some things and he would give me advice, but I, I never studied conducting. I had the basic, uh, you know, I have a music education degree, so I had all of that stuff. And I suppose a certain amount of it's natural because when I got, when I did my student teaching in Quincy, Illinois, the band director, much to my chagrin, he's after 
I was finishing student teaching. He announced in front of the band that I was the best student teacher conductor he had ever had. Now, bear in mind, I had zero experience and I was extremely self-conscious and I was trying. So I think what it is, it's a mixture of kind of a driving personality and I am funny. Um, my daughters don't think I'm funny, but I, I am funny. And But most of the musicians, can't, they've told me they can't tell in the rehearsal when I'm joking and when I'm serious because I, I criticize mercilessly, but I try not to sound like a jerk when I'm doing it. We'll be right back to my conversation with Bob McConnell right after we listen to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, performed by the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra at the St. Peter and Paul Church earlier this month. When we come back, Bob and I talk about the history of St. Peter and Paul's.
for me, it's it's part of my Christmas. I just you know include that in my Christmas season. It's one of the highlights of it, and it's your it's your engagement. You know, first of all, you're totally fit. I know you run marathons and you eat right, and you know you're you have a you radiate uh, health up there. You know, it's not like somebody is dragging through this concert. It's like, here comes this band who has energy and presence and radiates that to the audience. I don't run marathons anymore. I'll tell you that. You don't? Oh, uh, no, but, you, but to, I, you used to run marathons. Yes, I did. I did. I, uh, when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, I, um, I decided, well, first of all, I quit quit consuming any alcoholic beverages in, in sympathy with her as I think, you know, any spouse should. And, uh, but I decided I'd run some because I'd run in high school and I really enjoy running, but I ran into muscle problems eventually. And, and, um, but no, you're right. I mean, now I am, I'm more fit now than I was 15 years ago because I dramatically changed nutrition and when I eat and that kind of stuff. But um, it's that your comments are interesting to me. So you're not really talking just about the conducting. You're talking about relating to the audience right. and the conducting. And here's a, here's a common comment. And I, this is amazing that it's a common comment. So people that move to the Burlington, Mount Pleasant, Ottumwa area from a major city that used to go to hear their big orchestras they have come up to me and they said, we like this more, like in this particular instance in Burlington, they go, we went to the Chicago Symphony weekly. This is more fun. We enjoy it more. Why? And they said, why is that? You know, and I, I just said, well, first of all, we're performing in halls that are sized for what that music was written for originally. It wasn't written for 25 to 3,000 seat halls, the bulk of it. But um, we try to connect with the audience when we play. And so one of my musician friends, it was he was watching a cello solo with us, and he said, this orchestra has fantastic esprit de corps. And they were crediting me. And again, that's that's... Yeah, I'm not stifling it, but it's a community of players that are good together and we play together a lot and we we have high standards. We're not just a social organization. Our, our primary goal, mission statement actually for Southeast Iowa Symphony is to provide high quality orchestral performing opportunities for people that live in our re- region and listening opportunities for people that live here and rural outreach for students and musicians. And that that you do. I know that you hop from school to school and performance to performance, and even you yourself commute to St. Louis and back. Do you do that weekly or? Um, So I drove up to Iowa today, and that was my second or third trip up this week. Um, it's three and a half hours to my farm, three hours to the school, but normally once a week, I'll come up on a Sunday. I rehearse the Southeast Iowa band on Sunday nights. I farm on Monday. Um, I do the orchestra on Monday nights 
And then I either drive back to St. Louis or I stay up here and work at the farm. Sometimes I'll be up here for eight to 10 days. Uh, I have a hog farm and a friend of mine who's also a musician, uh, uh, guitarist, Randy Swift, he, uh, he lives at my farm and does daily chores, works his butt off. And then I do all the trucking of the livestock. I do some repairs. I truck all the grain. He grinds and hauls feed. I manage it. And then my office is in St. Louis. I do Excel and QuickBooks from down there. I guess I'm kind of an activity addict. I, I don't, you know, Here's if it. I have to, yeah. If I face myself in the mirror, I had a Chinese guy at my farm once that he turned to me when he was leaving after a visit and he knew me through several encounters. And he goes, I hope you stay busy. And I said, why would you say that to me? And I started laughing. And he goes, you seem like the type of person that's happiest when they're busy all the time. And I think he probably was right. I mean, I don't, you know, I was thinking about you being a poet and how that's one of the things that makes me feel like a shallow, insensitive person is I don't sit around and read poetry. But when I do read it, I appreciate it. And my wife will say to me, you need to do that more. And I don't typically read much fiction because I'm more interested in history and science. But then she'll hand me a book and like the Poisonwood Bible. When you oh, that's a great book. Yeah. And you're just like, I should be reading all the time. But honestly, when you play oboe, you just you've had to become a music monk because you spend so much time making oboe reads. And um, I don't do that as much now, but between conducting and playing and the rest of life, you know, I'm pretty busy. So at some point, maybe I'll have time. Well, you're a busy man. I was reading the history of St. Peter and Paul's church um, today, and it was built in... 1898, and the parish went into terrible debt to build the church. They uh, they they quarried the stone for the foundation right near there, and then they actually made the bricks right on the grounds, and they brought in all of the uh, equipment to make that. And so the first mass, I believe, was in 1899, and the priest said the Mass, and then he had all the doors locked, and he wouldn't let the congregation out until they coughed up the money to pay off the debt. And so they were in there several hours until they all pledged enough money to pay for the church. <laughs> pay for the church. And somehow I flashed to you. I thought that would be something, that a story that you would enjoy. And maybe you could tell us what the program was this year, what you played this year? So I've heard many of these stories and, and that's just scratching the surface, what you told. I think part of the impetus for the church being built was community division where they were attending church in Kyoto and some people became aggravated with other people as often happens in our human societies. And so they, they wanted to build that church out there. So many of the people, well, to jump to the present, 
the diocese population kind of dropped in the area. And the diocese wanted to close it. And there's a beautiful cemetery there. And the church is fantastic. They were going to demolish it. Mm. And the farmers said, if you let a contract on demolishing that, we're going to let the contractors know that we're going to ruin their equipment. We're going to sabotage their equipment. We don't want that torn down. We want the place. The diocese agreed to sell it to them for a dollar. And I think since then, they probably put in 500 to 600,000. Fabulous facility. If any of your listeners, you know, these people are going out for weddings and paying 15 or 20,000. This place is a bargain and it's more beautiful than oh. any of the other places. I, I just tell people all the time hey, if you have a special event, go there. Fantastic acoustics, wonderful kitchen in the basement. Yeah. Wonderful restrooms. Beautiful carved naves, uh, beautiful wood carvings. I heard they brought in a Jewish wood carver from the Quad Cities. So it's an ecumenical church. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, unrelated to the church, it, it was, you know, definitely German families. Right. And um, there before World War One, there's a story around about the German community there in Kyoto, Harper, that kind of region, Talleyrand, Richland. So some people didn't make it when they immigrated. I mean, farming was super tough then, you know, and uh, some of them went back to Germany. So at the end of the war, one of the Kyoto uh, soldiers was in line serving food to uh, German prisoners coming through. And the one guy, um, he put food on his plate and he said, I hope you enjoy that, Tom. And the guy looked up at him and he goes, you think you know me? And he, he said his last name too. And he goes, how do you know me? And he goes, you used to live in Kyoto, Iowa. And, uh, and he said, I'm, I'm this guy's cousin. And, uh, and the prisoner knew him too. So there's that church has, I mean, those guys can tell you so many stories. So the program this year, in fact, we were just ready to start. And one of my first violins was visiting with people in the crowd. And she said, to, this woman was very elderly. I think she actually was in her late 80s. And she said, my mom was the first one baptized in this church. Uh, so that's the kind of relationship that, that this church has with that community. Um, the program we did, so what I like to do is make it a variety of just straight chamber music. And in recent years, we've been having choir from Iowa Wesleyan come up. And we have them do part of the program with us. And it's the acoustics are just unreal. And, and then we do some kind of Christmas music and just a real variety of things. Um, I, I like to think of it as us all getting together in somebody's living room. That's how I present it anyway, is I'm going to tell you what I think you need to know that will enhance your enjoyment of the piece without me going on and on and without being boring. And that's always a super fine line. And that line is in different places for different people. <laughs> and it, I think everybody does enjoy it. And, and you also mentioned the 
little refreshments and lunch they have afterwards in the church basement. I enjoy that um, equally as much. And visiting with those people who have a history there, you're right to bring up that fact that those families, you know, the people that are in a attendance have families that go way back in that church. And several of them would say, you know, I came to this church when I was a child. This was my family's parish, you know, and I can imagine what it must have been like when they thought the church might be demolished. And now we're going there for this beautiful concert. Dick Baker was a hog buyer over there in Kyoto, and his son is a hog buyer now. And Dick knew me and he'd heard I played music. He'd never heard me play. And he, a great guy, he calls me and he goes, hey, sometime I want you to come over here and take a look at this church we have. I think it'd be really good for music. So I finally got a range and went over there. Well, once we got there, I said, I played a wedding here. Yeah, that's a great church. I, I played a wedding and it was, uh, I think, Sheila Horace's daughter. The Horaces are another typical name over in that area. And he goes, I'd like you to do something here. And he didn't know what. So we talked and talked and decided, well, let's do a Christmas like chamber music concert. And we did it. And it was, and people came. I mean, these are not people going to normal concerts, I guess. And I've tried to talk a lot of them into coming down to our concerts at Mount Pleasant. But Usually they don't. Some have. That's how it got started. We've been doing one a year. We got snowed out one year and we did one in April, but we didn't have the good attendance. Um, but I think we'll probably do one next summer because they've become really popular. Oh, good. Well, I'm putting that on my calendar for next summer. And I think that brings us to a close here. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention or talk about that I haven't asked you? No, this is really interesting. It's made me think about things I haven't uh, thought about very much. Well, it's been a pleasure visiting with you, Bob. I'll see you, I'll see you next summer at whatever concert you're going to do in Harper, or maybe I'll spring to go down to Mount Pleasant. Yeah, bust loose and drive 35 miles. <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> oh, so nice to visit with you. We'll finish today's show with another song from the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra's performance at St. Peter and Paul's Church from earlier this month, titled Mount St. Michael.
And that concludes our episode for today. We had production today by Rick Brewer of Brouhaha Audio. We had support from the Warner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Calio Levine Fund, who also supports our farm to artist residencies. We also had support from the Iowa Arts Council. We welcome your support. Simply go to our website to agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot org, and hit that red donate button. Thank you for your help, and we'll see you next time.